0: Welcome to Asia Abridged, where we present the best moments from Asia Society programs in 15 minutes or less. I'm Michelle Flor Cruz. Since the election of Donald Trump as president in 2016, immigration issues have dominated the political conversation in the United States. Most of the mainstream conversation focuses on the Latino populations, but some of the earliest and strictest immigration laws were created to target and exclude Asian immigrants. Today, immigration policies continue to have a profound impact on Asians. Asians represented the fastest growing immigration population in the United States from 2000 to 2015, with the largest groups coming from China, India, and the Philippines. On today's episode, two undocumented Asian immigrants provide firsthand accounts of their experiences arriving and assimilating to the United States. Speaking at Asia Society this past May, these storytellers give a glimpse into their journey to the country, as well as how they've navigated studying, working, and building relationships while undocumented. First, we hear from Antonio Xu Liu, who describes a harrowing border crossing and documents the challenges that he continues to face today.
1: The summer of 2004, my mother says to me, we're going on a vacation to Mexico. I was 10 years old and remember being pretty excited. and Even asked my mom which one of my toys I could bring with me. To which she responded, we couldn't bring too much, just the necessities. So we landed in Mexico after a seven hour flight and checked into a worn down motel room where we stayed for a couple weeks. Then one night my mom says to me, we're actually gonna go to the US to see grandma and your aunt and that the trip would be a little harder than our trip, our flight to Mexico um, and that we would be doing some illegal things. The trip to the U.S. started by traveling closer to the U.S. and Mexican border with four other Chinese immigrants who we had met along the way. One night, all of us set off for the border and had to trek through some type of forest in order to get closer um, to the border. It was pitch black, slightly raining, there were trees all around, and at one point we were walking single file on the side of a hill. My mother behind me and the man who would lead us to the U.S., our coyote, in front of me. I took a wrong step and slipped on some wet leaves and as I was about to slide down the hill, the coyote somehow saw and grabbed me. He threw me on, on his back and carried me the rest of the way. The hike was a couple of hours long and went into sunrise at which point we had to hide inside a big bush by the side of a river for about 12 hours until the sun set again before continuing our trek. We made it to our next hotel, and the next part of the trip is the hardest and the scariest. My mom, me, and one of our fellow companions who were traveling together would be the first to cross the border. We were led to a red convertible parked outside of our hotel, and we're packed into the trunk of it. I went in first, followed by my mom, and then followed by the other man, whose name I... I, I didn't even know. Our drivers were two very nice women who, during the drive, had the top roll down. Thankfully, it was a convertible. Um, and one of the back seats down in order to let me breathe. So I was the first one in the trunk, and um, it gave me the chance of having a little more ease of breathing. After a couple of hours of driving, one of them leaned back and whispered, we're getting closer to the border, um, so I'm going to have to put this seat back up. I said, Okay. I remember the next moments very clearly. Um, my mom was holding me. I could feel her breath on the back of my neck. Uh, the car came to a stop, and I could hear the, patrol, um, the Border Patrol agent and the driver chatting in a language that I didn't understand at the time, English. It was then that I thought about how much it would suck um, if they checked the trunk. Uh, they didn't, thankfully. Um, our car continued through, and we were in America. It was great.
0: Leo was able to stay in the U.S. thanks to the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Policy, or DACA, which protects young undocumented immigrants who grew up in the U.S. from deportation. After getting an engineering degree in New York, Leo found a job, a partner, and friends. But unlike many of his peers, he lives with the persistent fear of being punished for his undocumented status.
1: Don't argue with anyone on the street. We see police walk the other way. If someone picks on you, just look down and leave. These were common phrases my mom said to me at the age of 10 as I left for elementary school every day. And still common phrases she says to me now at the age of 24 every day as I leave for work. I understood the inherent and very real fear behind my mom's repetitive repetitive warnings more and more as I continued through high school. But those years never reached their peak. Um, That fear never reached their peak. Largely because as I graduated high school, as my adulthood was kind of about to begin in June of 2012 uh, President Barack Obama introduced a policy that would become DACA. I'm one of 800,000 DACA recipients who has the great privilege of being legally able to drive to my local target (laughs) with a smaller percentage of fear of getting pulled over. I'm one of 800,000 DACA recipients who has the legal authorizations to use my knowledge my degree um, to make the city that I live in better also known as working. As I continued into adulthood and through college, my growing up continued too. There were some negative experiences and there were some really positive experiences too. I finished school and received a bachelor's degree. The first one made my immediate family before my mom got married. I met my boyfriend of now four and a half years, Keegan, who's in the audience today. And I even got a full-time job after graduation. But one experience that's had a large impact on me happened more recently. This past October, my parents and I are semi-debating over dinner about whether I should or should not attend the DACA rally and for the first time, like tonight, share my story in front of a couple hundred people. Their argument ultimately teetered on one point. What if people find out? Of course, what if the authorities find out? Of course, they already knew I was here. Um, But also, what if our relatives find out? What if the people that live next to us find out? What if the people we play mahjong would find out? Within the Chinese community, there's a culture of unspoken shame with being a dreamer and an undocumented immigrant. And therefore, it's something that we keep very close to our hearts and don't share with anyone unless it's really necessary. This in turn results in a culture within the community where resources are not shared and used, where knowledge is not passed along, and just where mutual support doesn't really exist the way that it does in other places. DACA has given me, and many others, the ability to do a lot of things and live a much more regular life, but I still have to plan my future in spans of two years, which is how long each DACA renewal is. I still can't travel abroad for work, school, or vacation. I still get nervous every time I drive and think about getting reactive. The officer asks me what the temporary visitor stamp on my license means. There are 2.8 million other young people who have these fears and even more because they do not have DACA. There are 2.8 million other young people who don't have the privilege of dismissing my mother's repetitive warnings. And that's why we have a lot of work to do, and that's one of the reasons why I share my story.
0: Teresa Lee was the original inspiration for the DREAM Act legislation. Here's her story.
1: When I was seven
2: years old, my dad called my brothers and me into the family living room for a very important meeting. He said, I have a very serious secret to tell you kids. You can't tell anyone outside the family about this. We are undocumented. We don't have this paper that uh, says we're allowed to live here. There's this thing called a green card and a citizenship, and we have neither. We're supposed to go to Brazil, where I was born, or South Korea, where my parents were born. It's complicated. We could even be separated if anyone found out about our status. That's why we cannot tell anyone. The kind of fear that you grow up with when you're an undocumented child is all pervasive. I've shared many stories with my fellow undocumented friends of the recurring nightmares we grow up experiencing with uh, paramilitary style, police raids, with your, your family members taken away or worse. And with this fear comes a deep sense of Isolation. Like most undocumented kids, I also grew up extremely poor. For years, our family lived in a basement in Chicago with no furniture or beds. We slept on hammocks because the basement floated every time it rained. There was no hot water or heat, and some days we would go without food. It was around that time that I started playing the piano at my dad's church. My dad was a pastor who was never quite able to grow his congregation enough to um, uh, be eligible for a religious workers' visa. But he did have uh, a wealthy parishioner who, when she found out how we were living, bought us uh, thousands of dollars uh, worth of uh, new furniture, including a piano for me. And I fell in love with the piano. It gave me joy and a sense of purpose. Uh, as well as uh, respite from harsher realities of life. I became the church's full-time pianist by the age of nine, Uh, the accompanist for my school choir, and I started winning some local piano competitions. And when I was in high school, I got a full scholarship to the Merritt School of Music, and within a year, uh, I won a bigger competition, which meant I got to perform the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And I was the first inner-city kid in Chicago's history to do so. It was around this time that uh, the artistic director of the music school where I was attending, Anne Monaco, she called me into her office to ask what colleges I would be applying to. Now, I had always assumed that going to college would be an impossibility for me, especially at that time, Even if I could get a scholarship, there were no dream teams on campuses back then, no undocumented activists, no support groups. There was no public sympathy. There was just me, a frightened 17-year-old girl, and her confused teacher, because I sheepishly told her that I wasn't going to college. And Monaco, she maintained her composure and simply handed me 10 college application forms and handed them to me and told me to uh, fill them out and return them back to her. And I did what, uh, what she said. And she immediately noticed the missing social security number. I burst into tears. I confessed to her that I was undocumented and asked her to please not report me to the police because I cannot be responsible for separating my family. What she did instead was to begin looking ways to help me that led us to Senator Dick Durbin's office. And Senator Dick Durbin looked into my case and he saw uh, an outdated, unjust system. And he said I would have to be deported back to my birthplace, which was Brazil. And so what we did next was we started gathering letters of support from every source I knew Uh, including my mentors, my teachers, the board of directors of the music school, the donors of the music school, who happened to know Senator Durbin directly. And so Senator Durbin decided to write a personal bill on behalf of me, and that became known as the DREAM Act. By 2001, I had made it to the Manhattan School of Music in New York City, uptown, uh, on a full scholarship. And on September 11th of that year, I was on my way to the airport to fly to Washington DC for a hearing on the DREAM Act. We had 62 votes lined up. It was ready to pass. We may have had 67, which would have already a president's veto. And President Bush was ready to sign it into law when all flights were canceled due to the terrorist attacks. In addition to the horror that we all felt that day, What it meant for the DREAM Act was that a bill that was going to be easily and uncontroversially passed would stall for over 18 years. The mood of the country changed that day. The American public became more fearful, particularly of the uh, the perceived outsiders, and any immigrant-friendly legislation was out of the question. Over the next few years, though, the DREAMers, began bravely coming out of the shadows to tell their stories, to share the stories, leading a national movement, to demonstrate, to organize, to march, to support one another, even change the narrative of uh, of immigration. And most importantly, the Dreamers won public support because we're starting to understand what it's going to take for our undocumented mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, our neighbors, to finally see some justice and to be treated with some respect. And that means, for on our part, that we have to combat this fear that came out of 9-11, that was exploited exponentially to justify a war on terror. To see real justice means combating this fear with love, with empathy and care for our neighbors. For example, making sure that there is a safe sanctuary space in our in your own neighborhoods. And I believe that this is the first step to a broader, sane, comprehensive immigration reform.
0: Thanks for listening to the Asia Bridge Podcast. If you'd like to hear more, you can check out our show page at asiasocietyorg podcast. And you can subscribe to the Asia Society podcast on iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Until next time, this is Michelle Flor Cruz.